Thank you, Jesus. We have felt your presence here again and again. We bless you, Father, for the certainties in our hearts that you continue to lead us, that you continue to provide, you continue to supply. And God, we thank you. I want to thank you for every person who, Lord, responded to your personal prompting. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice involved. I thank you for churches already pressed with building programs and local challenges who said, no, we're in this this is where we're looking. Our eyes are to the ends of the earth. I thank you for courageous eldership decisions. I thank you, Jesus, for individual, courageous, sacrificial giving that took place here yesterday. God, we just thank you. I thank you that this is all the work of your spirit, that, Lord, you are bringing about the obedience that's based on faith. And we praise you for that, God. We thank you, Lord. No one is over us with a whip, but we are finding faith to obey, and we praise you. Lord, we trust you now. We ask you again that you will please guide us. I pray for a genuine, holy fear of God in our handling of these finances, knowing that one day we stand before you to give account. We pray in Jesus' name that you will give us great grace, great diligence, great wisdom, we pray that the love of Jesus might be displayed and demonstrated all over the world because of the obedience that took place here last night. I ask you, Lord, for trouble spots that we will arrive at with means of grace because of what happened here. And we pray for churches. We pray for people who, Lord, we've not yet met. People whose lives are horrendously oppressive, empty. We pray, God, we just dedicate, Lord, even as we sang earlier, Lord, I give you my heart. Lord, we say, we just give this again to you. And we say, Lord, will you please direct it, Father, and direct us that the maximum number of people may be marvelously helped because we, Lord, were able to channel these resources. So, Father, accept our praise. Accept our thanks. Accept afresh our commitment to you for the days and the year ahead. Lord, we pray for these Let's Go teams. We pray, stimulate us. Lord, we, we love the thought, the prospect of, Lord, maybe this kind of number, two or 3,000 turning up in each of these places, hitting towns with great power, coming for exciting instruction in the morning, hitting the streets in the afternoon, gathering with evangelistic crowds at night. Lord, it excites us. And we pray, just stimulate and guide we pray for the young people getting caught up with the Manchester vision. Lord, we say, guide us, oh God. Guide us. We want to transition into being an evangelistic community on the move with you in the UK and to the ends of the earth. We pray for those who've traveled literally right around the world to be with us. We pray for traveling mercies. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will guide us as we reach out now to, yes, the ends of the earth from this part. And we pray... Lord, order our steps. We think of the calls from China, from Australia, from the Philippines, from Lord Jesus, these many places. We say, in Jesus' name, you guide us, Lord. And we want to do it with faith. And we want to see great things accomplished. Now, Lord, as we uh, take this last session, as we turn to your word now, we pray, Father, for the inspiration of the Spirit. We pray you will be our teacher. We pray you will, Lord... Uh, Open the eyes of our hearts and stir our motives and glorify your great name. Come and help us, please, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I may keep stopping and just thinking, wow. And then, and then go back to the passage again. <laughs> Ephesians in chapter 4. I'll read this time from verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Coming then to the conclusion of this passage, of course, although we have subdivided it into three studies, the whole pas uh, passage holds strongly together. As Ken reminded us in that wonderful prophetic word just prior to my speaking, there is uh, a humility required at the beginning of the chapter. We come in with humility. We come in not assuming any greatness as individuals, but bearing with one another, loving, uh, showing kindness, because we're after something. Not just because forbearance is a good thing for me to have, but because I have a goal. I want to see the church come to its fullness. It comes to its stature. There is a motivation for the glory of Christ. Christ is more than my personal sanctification. It's more than me being a person of good ethics. It is in order that we might arrive at this goal, a glorious, magnificent church coming to the fullness of the stature of Christ. So we saw, first of all, that attitude of heart. Then we saw God hammering home to us the unity of his church. Then we saw that the ascended Christ has given these various grace gifts. He's given men to the church to equip them. And now we come particularly to this whole point. What is the role of these ministries? What is the role of these gifts of the ascended Christ? Remembering that these are not men appointed by committee or by church, but appointed by God. God's grace gifts to his church for their good. And here we're seeing Paul's uh, longing for the destiny of the church to be fulfilled. And he shows us the purpose and the goal of the ministries to bring us there. And so the role of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher is to equip God's people. John Stott says, Here is incontrovertible evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. We're talking about a whole community alive with ministry. A whole family on the move together. And of course the imagery used here is actually a body with every part functioning freely. 
And again, John Stott goes on to say, the New Testament concept of the pastor, and remembering yesterday's study, we're not only talking about pastors, we're talking about apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, all these ministries, is not a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands. We try to model that, even from this platform. We try to model that. No one's trying to hold everything to their own hands. There'll be one, then another, then another. No one's trying to guard all the ministry. And that should be reflected in church life, that the, the, the ministry, the leader, he's not holding everything to defend his stance. Successfully squashing all initiatives is what John Stott says we're to avoid. But one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover and develop and exercise their gifts. This should be one of the greatest motivations of a leader. He's looking for, discerning. What has this person got? And even from the earliest, uh, as people come through, maybe through an alpha course or into some kind of course you may have to welcome people into the church, we're looking. What is their flair? What is their gift? What is their potential? It may be at first, they're, all they're aware of is they need saving. They need just to be rescued. But for us as leaders, we need to be watching out for what is there in that person's life. Our ambition is not just to add another bottom to another chair. Our ambition is to see lives discovering what God has purpose for them to fulfill. Remembering they are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for works that God's foreordained for them to walk in. So it's a great privilege in leadership to be looking for the potential of those who join us. Discover, develop, and exercise these gifts. I love these phrases. It's an excellent quote of John Stott's. His teaching and training are directed to this end. The purpose of the teaching is not so that you should say, wow, what a great teacher John Stott is, for instance. He lives with this passion. This man has a fantastic testimony of producing small groups and people for ministry. He has lived this out in his context. And we need to see that as not simply that our goal is, oh, I preached well. Did people think I preached well this morning? Did it go all right? But the ultimate goal is that we are serving people, trying to see and enable them to become uh, themselves a servant people. Ministering actively, but humbly according to their gifts. Thus, instead of monopolizing ministry, he actually multiplies ministries. That's what we're after, multiplying ministries. That's the, that should be the motivational uh, force and drive of every one of us here who are at this leadership conference. We want to see ministry multiplied. The New Testament envisages not a single pastor with a docile flock, but both a plural oversight and every member ministry. That's to be a, a real motive in our hearts ever kept before us. And I want to just urge us to see the significance of that, underline that. The goal is to equip the saints with varied ministries with the ultimate purpose of building up the body. Now we haven't time, but you could do a Bible study on the word equip and look up uh, uh, in a concordance the various ways in which that Greek word is used. And you'll see it speaks of completing, it speaks of restoring, it speaks of preparing, and it's the same word that's used in connection with the disciples of the Lord Jesus when they were mending their nets. They were equipping their nets for more fishing. They were sewing them together where they'd been torn. The view was not simply to have a pretty net, but to get them ready again for fishing. 
And so a lot of pastoral ministry is often building lives back together again, not with a view just so good you're mended, but say, right, let's get back into the harvest. We're equipping saints for this work of ministry. Sometimes it is a mending work. Sometimes people do need seasons of recovery and refreshing. And we're not to drive the saints of God. And that's all go, go, go. So what about my own life and need of refreshing? Some of our equipping is that recovery work, that restoring work, but ever keeping the harvest before us. Ever remembering that's what we're called for. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's our marching orders. Those are our marching orders from Jesus. That's the identity, the foundation of the church. It is a mobile community. And so all pastoral work must be against that backdrop. And equipping is like, if you like, mending nets, getting people ready again to press on. And so we're not just preparing sermons, we're preparing people for this great ministry. Lincoln says, all believers are to be brought to a state of completion. And it is the ministers of Christ, the ministers Christ has given, who are the means to this end, as they exercise their ministries of proclamation, teaching and leadership. We do need to see this, although the New Testament is full of one anothering, that we are to keep on every person functioning in this one anothering role, actually these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers have a particular role in equipping the saints. So let's not despise ministry. Let's not swing away from the whole idea. We don't, we don't need leadership. We don't need clergy because everybody has a ministry. And sometimes pendulum-like, and I remember when this teaching of the body of Christ began to come out, some people said, we don't have a leader. We don't have ministries. We're all in the ministry. It's all functioning body here. And that tended to lead to just dissipation and destruction because the Bible here says, no, no, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, anointed ministry to equip the saints, to bring a body, a body with anointed leadership, encouragement and training and so on. So we need both perspectives. And notice this too, it brings about servant, uh, service in the body of Christ, to equip the saints for works of serving. Gifted people in, from the Ephesians 4 are a model to a serving style, so that ministry is understood to be a work of service. Stephanus is commended in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, and his household, because they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So when we talk about ministry, we mustn't come bringing from our pre-conversion world that whole sense of my fulfillment. You can go to bookshops these days and read books about being fulfilled, uh, having your own life, fill it, filling out your potential, etc. And we can bring selfishness to a verse like this and say, what is my role then? What is my ministry? Whereas the feel of this isn't me finding my place of fulfillment, but me finding where I can serve. What is my serving role? And here, uh, uh, Paul is very happy to commend Stephanus and say, look, he's kind of famous for, in my heart, that serving heart. And it's so beautiful when you meet that spirit. And so much that's done is not just on platforms. When I think of someone like a C.J. Mahaney, and I wanted to speak to him direct this morning while speaking, but he's flown out of here now, and uh, at least he's somewhere in an airport probably by now. Uh, on the tarmac for seven hours like most of us are. <laughs> but he, he 
perhaps does more behind the scenes, even on an occasion like this. He is constantly saying, how can I serve you? And I just want to lift him up, as it were, as a model. And say, Lord, I want to be more and more like that. And he's almost insistent. He says, oh, fine, everything's fine. No, no, how can I serve you? What can I do? So we're not saying, have you got a platform I can speak on? Have you got something? No, no, it's what can I do to serve you? That's the model. That's what we're going to see as we come to the conclusion of this, that God is looking for some a community that's come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. What was he like? He was amongst us as one who serves. So we're to equip the saints for service and to model serving. I don't have to look really as far as CJ, though I do commend him so much as an incredible servant. But I I think of the brothers that I'm working with all the time. I think of the hours that someone like Dave Holden spends on the motorway. I look at his program sometimes. I think you're going there and there, and you're going there as well, and you're going to the northeast again. And and I think, how do you fit all this in? There is a serving. I think of uh, Dave Devonish going deeper and deeper into Eastern Europe coming back with names of towns I've never ever heard of and pressing on, just giving, giving and still, and just there's a giving that's taking place all the time I think of uh, Duncan of Asante giving and giving in that heat and that pressure of India's giving and giving and giving I think of Simon going up and down Africa Sierra Leone the problems, the battles, the war zones giving and giving I think of even my dear friend Nigel, just going and giving and giving. There is a servant leadership being modelled. And I want to encourage us to see that we are called to serve and to find our spheres of serving where we can lay our lives down. And so it is to equip the saints not to find what is my ministry, but how can I serve? That is how we should focus it. That's how we should model it. That's where we should uh, put our eyes. Our purpose then is not to find personal fulfillment, but to build up the body of Christ. That's the goal. That's the objective. That is our desire. And the amazing thing is this, that Jesus could say this. When they said to him, have you had anything to eat? When he was sitting, talking to the woman at Samaria, and they'd been out to get food, he said... I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. This is my meat. This is my fulfillment, actually. To do the will of him who sent me. And as we do find our sphere of serving, actually it does become our fulfillment. Although it's not our motive to find my fulfillment. It's our motive to serve the Lord and to build up the body. Amen? As we do the thing God's given us to do, amazingly we find, hey, I am fulfilled in doing this. I have found my raison d'etre. I do sense this is what God made me for. But it isn't in order that we parade something we call my ministry. It's how we serve one another. And so Paul is wanting to set before us the magnificent goal of a mature, united body. And he talks here about a threefold goal. Unity of the faith, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God and a mature man. I want to just quickly look through these things. We spoke spoke earlier in verse 5, there is one faith, and yet here we're encouraged to move on to appropriate the unity of the faith. The idea is of the whole church moving toward the appropriation of all that is contained in its one 
faith. It's interesting that Paul here says that we all attain to it. And if you remember the earlier prayer, that we've not studied it here, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, you'll find that it says there that we will comprehend with all the saints the length, depth, the height, and breadth, the love of Christ. There is something of knowing the love of Christ, which I believe comes only with all the saints. It's not a private, personally, a personal wall of secret piety of getting to know him. Though every one of us might be saying that I might know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Like Paul said, that's my passion, I want to know him. But here he's saying that somehow there is a knowing with all the saints. There is a coming together to knowing him. There's something in the heart of God that is particularly motivated that we should come together He is strongly stirred, no doubt reflecting something of the wonder of the Trinity that Wayne Grudem brought to us yesterday, that out of God's being, there is something in God that says, I want them to come together to know me. That somehow they will never get to know me without one another. That one will shed more light, another will shed another light. And so even in the prayer in uh, Ephesians 3, saying that together you might come to know, here he's saying a similar thing, that with all the saints we're coming together for this corporate, mutually dependent knowing of God. And we're to strive after that in contrast to being tossed about by waves of doctrine. A unity of the faith. I believe God will just keep shedding more and more light, more and more revelation that will result in more and more coming to know him. I personally found the session here yesterday with Wayne Grudem quite extraordinary in terms of he was teaching on a certain line, but somehow the Spirit of God came upon him and as he directed our gaze Godward, it was as though there was a wonderful revelation of God. And I've spoken to several people since who were kind of gasping and saying, did you feel God's presence? And that together, as this dear man fulfilled his Ephesians 4 ministry to us, he was leading us into, together, a greater knowing of God. Which wasn't just speculative and thought, oh, I'll get that in my, uh, on the page of my book, but somehow in my heart, I'm feeling I'm learning something together with all the saints. We are being brought into more revelation. I believe God will keep on doing that sort of thing amongst us and it should be our goal and aim to strive towards that. Unity of the faith. When truth is properly presented to us, all the shadows flee away and all the contrary shouts and arguments just fade when there is such a clear word coming from God. That's what Ephesians 4 ministry is about. Is to equip the saints. I want to come back to that a little later on. Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And so, here, our unity in the faith is very centered in, not just a creedal statement, but also in a knowing of Christ. He's at the heart of the unity of our faith. So, Leon Morris says, not simply the promotion of orthodoxy, but the bringing of the people to know Christ. The linking of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God indicates that it is the relationship of believers to the Son of God that's at the heart of it all. That we're coming to know Him. We're coming together to know more and more of Him. He is at the heart of our unity in the faith. And Lincoln adds, attaining to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God is likely to mean appropriating all that is involved in the salvation of 
which centers in Christ. Earlier, in his two intercessory prayers, he has spelt out a number of aspects of this one knowledge that he desires his readers to possess. So if you read the two prayers in Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, you'll get insights of the sort of thing Paul longs for the churches to move into. And that's what he has prayed. In the earlier passages, such knowledge was regarded primarily as a gift to be received. He says in chapter 1, I pray that God will give you. Again in chapter 3, I pray that God may grant to you a sense of revelation of the knowledge of God, the eyes of your heart being opened. He's saying, I want God to give it to you. Here in this passage, he speaks more about it's a, a goal we need to reach. We're pressing in. God's opening our eyes. We press into more revelation with a willing heart and a desire and thirst to know more of him. And this brings us, as Paul desires, to a mature man. If we will collectively and individually pursue God in this, God's ultimate goal is to have for himself this mature, one new man. Spoken of earlier and two years ago, uh, we, we spent a lot of time uh, looking at Ephesians 2 and 3, the one new man. The tapes are available if you want to put these things together and make a complete set. I realize there's about a thousand more people here than there were here two years ago. And so there may be those who've had no exposure to that. But you can put those things together and build on the revelatory stuff of Revelation of uh, uh, Ephesians 2 and 3 as we're dealing with the practical stuff here in 4. In the earlier uh, well, here we see then, you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, is what he prayed in chapter 3. Now he's saying, I want you to arrive at maturity in him. So he's looking to us to play our part. At the same time, he's crying to God that they may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Praying and exhorting, as we saw in our first study. Then he says, this corporate maturity is not just mature individuals. Though, of course, Paul does talk about that in Colossians 1. He says, I want to present every man mature. It should be our objective for individuals to be mature. But here he's talking about something broader and grander, that we together come to maturity. And Lincoln makes, I think, this helpful comment. Not only do silly infants contrast with the mature adult, because it says not as children, but the plural of children also contrasts with the mature person individualism being a sign of childishness, unity a sign of maturity. We need to just be aware of that. That we live in such an individualistic age, such a desire to just not yield and give away any right. I want to be number one. I want to look after myself. Fight for number one. It's deep in the modern psyche. And we just need to say, God, help us to see that that's a childish stance in spiritual terms. And that to, uh, to be a loner, that's why it's so dangerous for people who just flit about from church to church and group to group, who don't get built in somewhere. That's part, that's, as, as Lincoln's saying here, that's childishness. Maturity is to be part of the one, to be gathered in, so that you get more revelation. And Paul goes on to warn us more, not vulnerable to false teaching, tossed by the waves. Immaturity is evidenced by instability. 
rootlessness, lack of direction, susceptibility to manipulation and error. I had a, a serious and alarming email just the day we came here. In fact, it was handed to me when we arrived here from a dear friend who often goes to China, where we know there's great revival taking place. But again, saying, is there any opportunity for teachers to go? Because there are so many cults, and some of them very powerful, that are leading people astray. They so need teaching. When we read their stories and we hear about praying over corpses and and people being raised from the dead and amazing healings and miracles and baptisms of thousands, you think, wow, what a church. But there comes this letter saying, hey, we need teachers. We need teachers because people are being led astray. Sometimes huge crowds of fresh believers because there are false cults that are growing fast as well. And so there is this vulnerability to the immature, the young that they can get wrong teaching. And so we need to see it not to be vulnerable. And in our day, more and more, books come floating through, paperbacks and shiny books and television programs. So many things can come across our desk, into our lives. We need to be saying, God, help us to build true to your word. Help us to stay true. I want to read this Lincoln quote here that's in your notes. In the context, this negative picture of verse 14 is meant to underline the importance of Christ's giving of the ministers to the church. That's safeguard from those who are being tossed about, being misled. Have you read this? Have you heard that? They are prone to being confused. That's what the suggestion of the passage is. They can be tossed about by false doctrine. So God has given to the church to safeguard them from that, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, to keep the church from that danger. It's so important that we see that. Immaturity, and this is very powerful, immaturity on the part of believers cannot be treated as a neutral state which will be outgrown in due course. Oh, they're immature. Uh, They'll get out of it. He's saying, no, it can't be seen like that. It is a highly dangerous condition because it lays them open to manipulation by cunning people and the forces of error. I must confess, I've seen people who started well and then were introduced to an emphasis Maybe a book was put their way or a little group invited them along and I think I would have thought, well, they're just young Christians, they're doing quite well. Yeah, I guess they're a bit immature. And he's saying, here, listen, don't see immaturity as a neutral state. They'll grow more. Now, there's a sense in which people come through the phases, but he's warning us. Beware the danger because you see someone who's doing very well and suddenly they are besotted with a strange emphasis. They've got hold of a funny doctrine and you can speak to them and say, oh no, you haven't seen it, I've seen it. You think, how did that happen to that super guy, that wonderful couple? How did they suddenly go off on that? It is not to be regarded as just a a place of a neutral state, as he puts it. No, because they know it's our responsibility to serve the saints. It's a highly dangerous condition. It is precisely for such a situation that pastors and teachers and the other ministries have been provided to prevent believers in their immaturity from falling prey to false teaching and to lead them from the, uh, to lead them from the instability which ends in error to the stability of the truth. We must give ourselves to truth, brothers and sisters. 
And those of us who are responsible for teaching, we must give ourselves to reading, we must give ourselves to study, we must take that word that Paul says to Timothy, that we must study to show ourselves approved of God, rightly handling the word of truth. It's of huge importance. We can't just let any little thing drift in and out of the church. We must be diligent in this area or we will not build strong church. We'll have as diverse number of doctrines sitting in front of you in people's minds as you can imagine. We need to teach truth and guard the people. Especially, I would say, we need to teach the new covenant that is plainly declared in the epistles. I want to urge us to see that importance. Don't get distracted all the time into devotional talks. I don't despise them. I do them myself from time to time. But it's very important, especially, to build the church on the apostolic doctrine. And if these things were previously hidden, although we believe the whole Bible is God-breathed, there is a sense in which it opens up more and more as it goes along. And so the Old Testament, yes, God breathed. I love the Old Testament. I love to read uh, the stories and Isaiah and the great prophets. I love to read it. But Jesus came bringing more light. What was previously hidden, he, he, he came in bringing light that had never been shared before. And then he said this, I've got more to say to you. But if I said it now, you couldn't receive it. But when I go to the Father, I'll send the Spirit. He'll reveal it to you. And then the apostles say, now God has revealed to us apostles things previously hidden, now revealed. Now it's so important that we, who are built on the apostles' doctrine, are familiar with, comfortable with, can expound, can build into people's lives these great apostolic teachings. Who you are in Christ how you have been crucified with Christ, how you've been buried with him, raised with him, seated with him. What is the people of God? These important doctrines, if you don't preach them, people will go off onto all kinds of strange ideas. We need to lay these truths into people's lives. It's part of our responsibility that we guard the people of God with truth. We must learn not only how to give it in our, get it in our hearts, but communicate it with life and effectiveness. Make sure the people of God understand. I once heard a man say, if you said to your congregation, how many of you have died? How many would put their hand up? How many would say, oh yeah, we've been taught that. We understand that. We understood that when we were, saw people baptized, when people were baptized. They understood Romans 6. They know what it meant. It's not, gosh, I've never heard that before. I know when I did the Enjoying God's Grace ministry some years ago, it was like revelation to so many people. And you think, but this is just straightforward Romans. And it's because we don't tend to preach through the epistles a lot. I want to encourage you, get these truths into the people so that we're strong and safe and enjoying the great salvation that Jesus has brought to us. So Paul is saying, come on, get hold of truth. Truth is what holds us together. Truth is what lines us up. Truth is what makes us safe and secure. Now obviously, we sometimes come to contentious situations in the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. I think again, I want to just applaud Wayne Grudem here yesterday. The subject matter he touched is highly contentious 
in our modern world. But love was just pouring out of the man. It was a phenomenal demonstration of what Paul's talking about here. Absolute truth, line on line, point 10, point 11. You know, it just goes on and on and on, deeply rooted into biblical revelation, but with such respect, with such grace, with such tenderness. The image of a hard-fisted man coming with a strong, out-of-date, archaic teaching, as some people want to say. He thought, boy, it's a million miles from this man. He's just oozing love tenderness, respect, and saying, but this is the line. This is what the Bible says. That is real ministry. That's Ephesians 4 ministry at its best. Guarding the flock from error, giving us dignity, respect, love, but bringing us to a safe place. Amen? What a calling. What a privilege. I sat there gasping and overwhelmed. And I I think, wow, sometimes we're overwhelmed with miracles and signs and wonders, and I'd like more of those. Yes, please, Lord. But that was also supernatural and wonderful. And let's see the wonder of the privilege of being Ephesians 4 teachers, many of you. That's your role. That's the gift you know God's given you. Rise to your calling. Do the people good. Get truth into their lives. Feed yourself on the Word of God yourself. Stott says, Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. And this is a simple statement which we must uh, work through. Beware the danger, as uh, I've put in the notes, about uh, as Simon Peter drew his sword only to cut off the ear of his opponent. And I've seen that happen a few times in discussing of doctrines. Uh, people flashing swords all over the place, and all they're doing is offending and removing the hearing ability of the people they're trying to win. And we just need... Jesus later has to come and heal those poor ears that we just slashed off by the way in which we shared our truth with them. We need to communicate with love and respect and tenderness so that people here don't have their hearing skills removed by our style. James says in James 3.17, the wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, reasonable, in the margin it says willing to yield. And yet in the same verse it says unwavering. they almost contradictory. How do you work that? Well, you work it out in maturity. That there is in us a willingness to yield, but we're not tossed about by every wave. We're not, uh, we're unwavering. There's a rock-like thing in us. But if you shed more light, we'll change ground. We'll move with you. There's a flexibility within a stability. That's a mature, they seem contradictory things. But a mature man or woman of God, I believe, can live with those things. With Christ as the head. Already said that Christ is the head over all things in the earlier chapter. Now we need to see his head particularly, not only over all things, but particularly head over the church, which is similarly said in Colossians. Lincoln says, through the proper functioning of the parts, the whole body is to be active in promoting its own growth, though ultimately it is Christ who is seen as providing the means for the body to carry out such activity. As the one who has been exalted to a sovereign rule over all things, Christ is in the position and has the power to supply his church with the leadership, the life, the love, that are the requisites for all its growth. And so in verse 15 he's saying 
that we grow up into him who is the head, even Christ from whom all this life is flowing. All right? So although we're serving one another and the various members are exhorting, encouraging, edifying one another, the life is still pouring forth from our head, the Lord Jesus. He's supplying the energy. He's supplying the grace that helps us grow together. And then I just want to look at these last few phrases before we wind up this morning and wind up our conference. Fitted and held together by joints of supply. What a vivid imagery came through Ken's prophecy about these bridges of truth. I was so blessed by what he had to bring. Truth interlocked. The appeal to us to make sure you're properly locked together. There are very heavy uh, trucks and lorries full that are going to go over those bridges. They need to be strongly held together. What imagery? Here, of course, we're talking about a, a physical body, a human body is the imagery. Joined together, ligaments providing connections, mediating life, energizing power throughout the body. As the joined up body is enjoying God's presence. Lord John says the apostle teaches if the whole body is to grow and to develop and to build itself up in love, it's very important that every particular part should be filled up to its capacity with this vital life and energy and be functioning as it's designed to do. It's not surprising that the, apostles, the apostle piled term upon term he was concerned to show the glory of the church, the glory of our position as individual members of the church. We are to play our part. We are to come to our own individual total availability, not rushing around through a, a kind of guilt association which just keeps us busy, 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 but finding our role. Doing the thing God has for us to do. Each part working properly. A multi-functioning body. God wants every part functioning. And we're not just a, a chance collection of individuals. God wants the diversity that's in the body of Christ on full display. He's looking for us individually to respond to him and then we find ourselves in the body of Christ relating to one another. Love being the energizing power behind them all. John Stott says this, if the 16th century recovered the priesthood of all believers, every Christian enjoying through Christ a direct access to God, perhaps the 20th century, I guess we should now put 21st, will recover the ministry of all believers. Every Christian receiving from Christ a privileged ministry to men. God wants us to see this primary calling to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So anything, though it may seem big and successful, that results in you don't call for much commitment. It doesn't call for much uh, involvement. It's going to be against what Paul's after with every part working properly. And so as leaders, we've got to watch for that. And so we need to beware the danger that just seeing numerical growth is the proof of success, because it isn't. And often, numerical growth is uh, being promoted in some places, perhaps particularly in the US, with the less and less you require of the people who come, get your meetings shorter, get it more and more coming from the platform, get the chair more and more comfortable, just let it flow over them, you'll get people coming, it doesn't demand much, you'll get more and more people. But that isn't what Paul's after. Paul's after every part working properly. 
And so it's very important for us to remember that goal. And I believe as we follow God's way, we can expect success in God's terms, looking for those who are growing in their sphere, growing in their ministry. I want to close with John Piper's quote. According to the New Testament, ministry is what all Christians do. Pastors have the job of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, but ordinary Christians do the ministry. What ministry looks like is as varied as Christians are varied. It is not an office, it's a lifestyle devoted to advancing other people's faith and holiness. Now that's the very provocative thing. A lifestyle devoted to advancing other people's faith and holiness. That is such a stimulating phrase. That is such a provocative phrase. Do you have a lifestyle that's committed to other people's faith and holiness growing? I believe that is the role of leaders and ultimately to become the role of all the people as we find our ministry. Our desire is to see other people's faith grow. Our desire is to see other people's purity coming through. So that as we move on in this, and see that's, that's what leaders are doing, promoting faith, promoting purity, giving themselves to this, and then modelling that, giving away more and more ministry to others, always remembering this is the ultimate goal. That we're all here serving one another. And I think that Piper's put it together marvellously. In this sense, the only life that counts for anything is a life of ministry. A life of serving, which will equip the saints for this work of ministry. Fulfilling your ministry is more important than staying alive. That's a provocative statement. Paul says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Doing the ministry that God gives to do is more important than life. You may think you need to save your life in order to do your ministry. On the contrary, how you lose your life may be the capstone of your ministry. What a statement. God is calling us to be like Jesus. I am among you as one who serves. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. One thinks of someone like Jim Elliot or Nate Saint, those young missionaries who so served God's purpose. Even Stephen in the New Testament the first Christian martyr, you think, how come he was taken out? Well, somehow, he didn't have to save his life to fulfill his ministry. His ministry reached its capstone by throwing his life away. That's how he served the purpose of God. That's how he was so like Jesus. The Father would say from heaven, Behold my servant. Here's one who's come not to be served, but to serve. He's come to lay down his life. He's come to show that God is worthy. He's come to say, I will do your will. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Behold the man, the model man. What God is looking for in the human race. What he did not get in Adam, who chose rather to serve his own cause, chose rather to believe the lie, you can be as God. And that man and his 
seed. I've walked the earth ever since trying to find how I can be as God, how I can be fulfilled. Now God has sent forth his son showing a totally different lifestyle. I'm among you as one who serves. And God says, behold, not only my servant, but behold the man. Behold the model man. The one who says, I want to do it God's way. And God is looking for a church of many members who come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. A mature man. What does a mature man look like? We might think, well, he's all powerful. He's kind of lightning shots coming from him. He's so powerful. Well, it may well be there's a lot of power. But above all, God wants a many-membered body looking like his son. And his son was preeminently here to serve. To serve the purpose of God. To serve his father. To do what his father wanted. Turning his back on every other thing. Come and make him king. Even the great teaching of Philippians 2. He didn't snatch at the right to be God, but humbled himself, becoming as a man, then humbling himself again, even as a servant to death, even death on a cross. And here's the demonstration of what God is looking for, a servant attitude. So when we say, what's my ministry? Our question should be, how do I serve? How can I serve you? How can I serve the church? How can I serve the people? How can I serve the purpose of God? And if we train up a people, if we quit, equip a community that all live like that, that we're serving and serving one another, and then this servant person, this servant people, this body of Christ, and the word the body of Christ is spoken about the universal church and the local church. The local church is a microcosm of the whole universal church. So in that locality, you become that servant of the Lord, serving that community, serving the purpose of God. Coming to fullness of stature doesn't necessarily mean muscles bulging more and more. It means being like Jesus. And it may involve even laying down our lives as we find ourselves reaching out I'm more and more aware of this, more and more conscious of this as we get further and further, as we penetrate into more and more places, dangerous places, touching the Islamic world, further and further away, fundamentalist Hindu entrenchment, more and more dangerous areas. God only knows when a life will be laid down. We say, well, is that a shame? Well, Piper's saying to us, no, on the contrary, how you lose your life may be the capstone, may be the capstone of your ministry. Doing your ministry is more important than saving your life. And so in conclusion, the focus of the passage is on the church's inner growth rather than on its mission. It could be argued... Ephesians 4 is about the church making growth of itself. What about the mission field? What about the world? If you look at Ephesians 4, it doesn't seem to be looking at the world. It seems to be looking at a kind of growing inner maturity. But Lincoln points out, no, the quality of its corporate life has everything to do with the church fulfilling its role in the world. It's as the church becomes strong and wholesome in the way that God wants it to be, then we will fulfill our ministry. It's because the church so often can be despised, rejected, so divided, so powerless, 
so out of love with one another, bickering, feuding. That's why it can be dismissed. But if it becomes the sort of church being described here, yes, there are, of course, world mission perspectives in this statement. Christ's ascension, far above all the heavens, was in order that he might fill the cosmos with his sovereign rule and his work in his church is part of carrying out of that rule. A glorious church is not turning our back on the world. A glorious church is saying this is the way the job will be done. I want us to give ourselves again and again to this calling. Let's do it with a humble heart. Let's do it knowing what God's after. Let's do it with individual disciplines. Let's do it with corporate awareness for the glory of God. Amen. Let's stand and pray as we close. Thank you, Jesus. Let's raise our hands to the Lord, shall we? Father, we're so deeply grateful to you for blessings, Lord, not just moment by moment, but over decades of your wonderful faithfulness to us. We want to tell you again, we're so grateful for what we feel in terms of the release of funds to get on with the job, is your approval stamp that we are on course doing the thing you've told us to do. And Father, as we separate here, some of us, Lord, flying back many miles to other continents and nations, some of us traveling short distances within the UK, we ask God for every church represented here. We ask you, Lord Jesus, will you please give more apostles, more prophets, more evangelists like Whitfield, more pastors and teachers. We ask your God, would you please give to us these ministries and would you please help us to walk in love and gentleness and forbearance. Would you help us, oh God, to play the part that each one of us has to play, that we might serve in the capacity you wanted us to serve. We pray for a passionate desire to serve. We pray for a diligence that we've seen on display in men men like Wayne Grudem here this week, the diligence of study, the diligence of submission to the Spirit that gives him such authority in the pulpit. We pray for one another. Please don't, Lord, allow us to be cheap and shoddy with the gift of teaching. Help us to be diligent in giving ourselves, researching, digging deeply, having a fear of God and a respect for Scripture. Lord, keep moving on us, we pray. And Lord, may we as a people bring you glory around the earth. We pray, Lord, when we gather here again in a couple of years' time, Lord God, we will come filling this place with more churches in the UK, more nations across the world. We ask you, Lord, that you will breathe upon what we do to your glory and to your praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Praise God.